Welcome to The The Get Together. Together. It's our show about the nuts and bolts of community building, and I am your host, Bailey Richardson. Hey, Bailey. What's up? I'm a partner at People & Company, and I'm also a co-author of Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People, which is now available on Amazon. Who did I write that book with? Where you at? Me. I'm Kevin Huynh. It's like Win with an H in front of it. (laughs) Huynh. Another partner at People & Company, and also Bailey's co-author of Get Together and co-host of the Get Together podcast and person who spends maybe the most time with me. I am the top time time spent spent for Bailey. Yes. Got it. Yes. You're number two for me, but it could be tied. Sorry. It'd be very close. All right. I need a partner. That's what you're saying. I have a fiance. Okay. Each episode, (laughs) we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to thousands more members? We got a special one today. Yeah, baby. We're talking to Jay Harati, the executive director of TEDx. TEDx, TEDx, TEDx. TEDx actually began as an experiment. Around 10 years ago, Chris Anderson, the head of TED, made a big decision. He took all the videos from the exclusive private TED conference and put them online for free. He says that decision had huge consequences for how they would run TED in the future. Chris recalls they became obsessed with this idea of radical openness, of giving everything away for free. And that eventually led to TEDx a couple years later. People who had been in the audiences of the TED event wanted to co-create with TED, not just sit back and listen. And TED gave them the chance to do that with TEDx. TEDx is volunteer-hosted events with TED-like talks that happen in communities around the world. The momentum in the program is phenomenal and still is. Ten years later, we have not done any active marketing. We have never promoted this and said, please join us, except for that first year. The program was structured in a way that provides enormous independence to the TEDx organizer and the community that comes to do it. First and foremost is about giving the tool to communities so that they can discover and stage the ideas that come out of their community. The first TEDx conference was hosted at USC in March of 2009. Today, there are more than 3,000 TEDx licensees in 170 different countries around the world. That's a lot. They put on 4,000 TEDx events each year, which are in turn attended by 600,000 people. That means they make about (laughs) 22,000 TEDx talks happen. And those talks are viewed on the TED website annually by around 1 billion views, which is insane. That's a lot. So that's a lot of statistics. Kevo... Can you tell me what stuck out to you about our conversation with Jay? So the thesis of our book is that you build a community with people, not for them. Community building can be looked at as a collaborative practice. And I I think a big part of that, especially as an organization, is relinquishing control. It's spreading out control. It's realizing that you cannot control everything if you really want to cultivate a community. And today's interview with Jay just really underscores this, especially how spreading out control as a community builder is this important and constant process. My favorite anecdote was just how they just celebrated 10 years and they're still removing rules from the rule book. It wasn't like they got it right at the beginning. They've continually kind of removed more of the guidelines to try to spread out more control and try to just get out of the way to allow the community to kind of do what it knows it wants to do. So damn refreshing to hear about an organization that trusts people and gives them ownership. I loved it. All right, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's get in. Let's go. 
Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are such a big fan of you, and it's exciting to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank yeah, you for inviting Jay. me. One of the things that amazes me about TEDx is really, frankly, that it exists. <laughs> I worked at a media company once, and the culture is often you make something perfect, and you deliver it to an audience. You don't co-create with them. How did Ted decide to embark on this journey? Like, why have you guys been able to be different from so many media organizations by being willing to collaborate and bring your audience into the fold? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, I'm in the same place as you are. Like, TEDx still amazes me. I drive up to TEDx events in different parts of the world and I walk in and I'm like, how is this happening? Because I know that we have so little to do with each individual production. And you walk in and it looks like a TED event and it looks spectacular. Mm. Ten years ago, this is before my time, but I give much of the credit to Chris Anderson, the head of TED. And I think for him, this was really about trust. Finding the people who are most passionate about TED, those who really love what we do, believe in ideas, believe in spreading ideas, and then trusting them. And if you put yourself back in that place ten years ago... When he's like, let's put online yeah. everything we know about how to do this, every single part of RIP, and give it to the public for free, give them our brand, give them the book, yeah. and just see what happens. So I think a big part of it was simply trust. Trust the people who support you the most. And then don't freak out when something <laughs> small happens, right? Mm -hmm. So Chris, still today, I will give him credit. In an organization that is actually quite particular about doing everything really, really well, when we have a little moment of embarrassment here and there, mm. he always kind of, which I have to bring to his attention, he takes a sign, he goes, look at the big picture. Yeah. You yeah. get 20,000 talks. Most of them are great. Some of them are amazing. Mm -hmm. They serve the people in the rooms that they come to. So here and there, okay, there's a little moment of like, it didn't come out great. Uh, but look at the big picture and just push through it. So. Yeah, absolutely. One of our, our other business partner worked at eBay in the early days. And he always talks about how people talk about like the one transaction that didn't go right. When in fact, there are tens of thousands to millions of transactions that are going totally well yeah. based on trust with other people. Yeah. And I think that it is important to see the impact you guys have had in comparison to anything that may go awry. The ratio is totally skewed oh, in the favor of good things. Absolutely. Always, yeah. always. And uh yeah, with 20,000 talks coming out every year from the TEDx community, that's what they put on stage. That's what they record yeah. and what we put online. It's amazing what they create. Uh, the vast majority of them are really good things that create energy in the room. Some of them are better than what we make at TED. Mm. You know, people mm. don't know, but some of the most talks that people recognize as the kind of Hall of Fame TED Talks were actually created by volunteers. You heard it here, baby. Yeah. Exactly. That's right, TED team, <laughs> exactly. listen close. Exactly. Oh, they hear me say that all the time. Like, you yeah. do know that it was a TEDx talk, right? <laughs> do you know very much about how you guys decided on that first person to lead TEDx because I'm sure that it was very much an experiment and there was a lot to figure out with that first person. So how was she selected and what do you know about the very first TEDx? Yeah, so this year, 2019, is our 10-year anniversary. Ooh, so this is, yeah, congratulations. We've been celebrating for a whole year. Uh, we're almost at the end of it now. And so in 2009, two things happened simultaneously. Number one, this idea came about of, hey, should we kind of try this concept of giving a, a guideline and organize a guide and asking people to help us. And an effort began to kind of pick a few people from the TED community. Those are the people that went to the 
flagship TED conference, conference. In, mm. which is now in Vancouver, and asked them if they would consider trying it out. And at the same time, USC approached us and said, hey, we're interested in doing this kind of an event. So the timing was perfect because this is something we were thinking about doing. And what they've committed to do is be in really close communications with us, tell us what's working, what's yeah. not working. And through that iterative process, we essentially developed the guidelines, the rules, the tools for the program, and then launched it. And that year, I think there were probably just a couple dozen events that took place through a combination of uh, USC, which was the mm. first one, as well as a few others that we seeded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a quote from Chris Anderson where he was like, oh, I didn't know this was going to work. Maybe we'll have like 10 of these in a year. And by like a year, a year and a half, I think the statistic was that they had had 278 events and yeah. it just absolutely took off. What do you think it was about the format or the approach in those early days that made so many people raise their hand and say, hmm. I really want to do this? Hmm. It's a number of things. It's really a mixture. It's the, the momentum in the program is phenomenal and still is. Mm. Ten years later, we have not done any active marketing. We have never promoted this and said, please join us, except for that first year, seating the first view. And then it took off by itself. I think much of it is credit to the TED brand and what it stands for. I think it stands for something quite clear. And mm. therefore, it, it has very passionate advocates who want to join forces with it. And I think the um, program was structured in a way that provides enormous independence to the TEDx organizer and the community that comes to do it. We recognized, um, first and foremost, is about giving the tool to communities so that they can discover and stage the ideas that come out of their community. Mm. We realized that it has to be a bottom-up organization. This is a distributed organization. The decision-making power sits outside of TED in the local community. They independently curate this conference. We have no idea what they put on stage until they send us the mm, video. Mm. So they have this enormous freedom to do it. And they're also very connected to other TEDx events in their community, in their country and around the world. So they work together to regulate the program, to learn, to get better. And those are really strong features that got the program to grow. Yeah, There's this balance of structure and freedom. I feel like with the... The TED conference existed for X amount of time before TEDx. And then it wasn't like, hey, host a TEDx. We don't know what it looks like, but there was a sandbox that was sort of built yeah. that I think was enough, enough structure to enable people to kind of take up a challenge perhaps that they wouldn't have been willing to or feel like they had the permission to otherwise, which allows them enough space to really inject it with you know, their choices about the speakers they curate and this and that. But I think without that structure, folks aren't as comfortable to experiment and make it something special. 100%. And this is why if you go to different TEDx events, you will recognize the format mm -hmm. and the style mm. and you will recognize some things, but the content is really going to be a reflection of what is important to the TED leading TEDx organizer and the core team that's around them. Some communities are about, we are only celebrating ideas that are born here, from here, mm. to celebrate our city. Other events are going to be like, we are celebrating ideas from around the world that we think we need to bring to this community mm. and everything in between. I want to get into some of the sort of structure pieces because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that know TEDx but haven't organized one. And, you know, if I raised my hand and said I want to host a TEDx, what would I need to do 
to get to that point? Like, could you take me through the steps that maybe at a reasonably high level of yeah, what yeah. I'd need to sure. do? <laughs> reasonably high level. <laughs> Thanks for the warning, because yeah. I could go really granular. <laughs> it's actually a very simple process. You go to TED.com, you go to participate, and you apply to join the TEDx community. We actually provide some really helpful information out there before you fill out the application. If anyone kind of takes the time to see, this is what it means to be in TEDx. This is what you'll be a part of. This is what is important to us. These are the kinds of people we want to join us. Mm. Here are the reasons why you should not do a TEDx event. We give all that information up front. There's a fairly simple application process. We basically don't ask you anything about like, what do you do? What are your credentials? What are your degrees? You know, where do you work? How much money do you have? Like, it's none of these things. The core questions that we pay attention to are... Why are you passionate about ideas? Why do you think that your community should have a TEDx event? We know you're, not, you're just starting. But if you were to put some ideas on stage, what kind of things interest you and intrigue you? And what we try to ascertain is that people understand that this is a conference about ideas without a particular agenda. You're not trying to sell anything. You're not trying to promote anything. You're not trying to go really deep into one area. It's got to be multidisciplinary. Uh, and it's uh, really got to celebrate the spirit of TED. From there, if you are approved, if you are approved to join the community, then we provide you with uh, some tools and some rules, and off you go. One of the things we talk about in our book is that vetting leaders, you're really looking for both people who are genuine, they have the right motivations, and people who are qualified, they're able to do the task in front of you. I'm wondering, do you guys look for qualifications, maybe not in like a traditional, like, oh, here's your CV, but it's a big ask to put on an event. And some of these are at a big scale. Is there anything you do to see like if they can handle that kind of event organizing or do you just feel like you can trust people to do that? It's trust and a leap. I actually think it's really impossible through a short application or even a long one to Mm. ascertain whether somebody has the potential to produce something that is as complicated Mm. as producing a TEDx event. We do this in New York for TED. It's a really hard thing to do. And what we've learned through the program is people just astonish us. They come from places where you would never, ever guess they would have the credibility to do it. And they grow with the program. Mm. So what we put in place is a way for them to start small see if this works for them and then they can go from there. Yeah. So your first license is up to 100 people. Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't interesting. know you yeah. guys say yeah, start yeah. this, start with start, the start size. With, uh, with up to 100 people and the rules are there essentially to make sure that you don't stumble. Like we know where the, the pain points and what's not going to work, but we also give a lot of information, a lot of guidelines, mm. both from TED, but mostly from the experience of other TEDx events. Mm. And passion will surprise you. And TEDxers have surprised us. And now we know that some of the most amazing TEDx events we have around the world are actually by people who were like literally just out of school mm. and had no work experience when we first met them. And so we have this philosophy of, um, of saying the worst outcome is if we reject somebody who has the potential mm. to be good. Mm. If we accept somebody who's like, oh, not, not great, we can address that. We'll know in a year. You know, they'll know. Most likely mm. they'll know in a year mm. yeah so that's not so bad you I mean, we're not so afraid of that of course we try it not to happen but we want to make sure that if somebody wants to join us they have it in them and they think they can grow we invite them and they can surprise themselves and all of us it's almost like 
the application is less of a selection process and more of a filter. It's just filtering, as you exactly. said, how important it is to say, why not host a TEDx? And if you're interested, the application is a filter to get to the folks who really have sort of that passion to do this, this passion to organize something for their community about spreading ideas. And as you said, if we'll hopefully get to the critical mass of them who will do a great job. Yep, 100%. I agree. What are some of the hardest parts of organizing a TEDx? If we started to poll TEDx organizers, what are the things that they struggle with or would say are some of their you know biggest pain points or challenges? Well, I think the totality of putting together the TED event is a big part of the challenge, right? Because you have multiple, It's a, this, first of all, it's a live production. Mm-hmm. And it's recorded and it's got like you've got the physical stakes are high. Yeah. Exactly. Stakes are high. <laughs> and something Oscars. always goes wrong when yeah. you are dependent on 20 speakers yeah. showing up on time, being prepared, video equipment, audio wow. equipment, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of audience. Yeah. I mean, many of our events now have auditoriums of thousands. One of yeah. them is 10,000 plus people, right? Wow. So there's a lot of components to think about. Um I would say that getting the stage program, the curation is the part that they focus on um, probably intellectually and mentally most engaged with. We pay great attention to that at TED and at TEDx. What are the ideas? Are they worthy of the stage? Are they credible speakers? Is the program balanced? Mm. So they think about that a lot. That's probably a big, the more fun part of what they do, although it's hard. Mm. And I would probably say the hardest part is for them is finding funding for their event. Uh, These things are are not cheap and it's not easy to find sponsors for a one-day event or a half-day event where, according to TED and TEDx rules, we don't let the sponsors send their CEO and give a talk on stage. Mm. And they don't get any say in the program, right? So it's it's more about come and be associated with what this TEDx event stands for. And that takes a while to get that pitch down. And uh, I know something that they have a hard time with. Yeah. What are some of the, you just mentioned this kind of one specific guideline around for instance, if a sponsor comes, the CEO can't take the stage. What are some of these other particular specific guidelines that you feel like are unique to TEDx that have helped make it what it is? So the first one is the independence of the stage. That's the one you just referred to. And that includes the program and the ideas that you put on stage are not influenced by a company that sponsors you, a religious institution that you're a part of, a political party that's in your community, or your spouse who just wrote a book, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like yeah. really your your program is for your community mm-hmm. with your independent curatorial spirit. Yeah, that's probably the most important. I love um, that phrase, independence of the stage. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. yeah. The second is the credibility of the speakers and the idea. So we put a lot of emphasis on uh, fact checking and making sure that you don't put any pseudoscience on the stage. That if you have a speaker making who's making claims, that you take real good care to make sure that you can stand behind them. Again, the TED and the TEDx reputation are both at stake for that. We generally tell people that we believe in human potential. And so we ask them not to put ideas that create a sense of us versus them. Hmm. So if it's a talk saying, here is a problem and this group of people Mm. is the problem, is something that we don't like to see on stage. And that's an important part of it. And the last is probably the spirit of volunteerism and not-for-profit. TEDx is a volunteer endeavor. You join it because you believe in the collective nonprofit goal of TED and TEDx, and preserving that spirit in in many ways is an important part of TEDx. 
I love these details. I feel like these guidelines really do create the sandbox of what makes a get-together, a gathering, a conference, an event special. How does that work logistically? Are chapters, you know, identifying who their speakers are in some sort of system ahead of time to TED? and Or is it just, you know, afterwards you see the videos that are uploaded? How's that information kind of passed um, between those independent organizers in the headquarters? So they have complete independence on the curatorial program of their event, and we do not interfere or intervene or interact with their program before the event in any way. Uh, we normally find out what they had in the program after mm-hmm. the event took place, when the talks are uploaded to our media uploader, and that's when we find out. For the most part, I mean, if it's a big, prolific event that did a live stream and send us an email, we might know about it before. And that's really the important part of their independence. And it's a lot of responsibility and they take it seriously. We have a team of 20 people in New York that are overseeing this entire program, all its operations. So we could never possibly even, I mean, it's not, it's not the nature of the program, but also it's logistically impossible. Mm-hmm. The way they do it, there are so many different methodologies that TEDx organizers use to put on their stage program. And each group is doing it differently. Uh, they start the process as, as early as six months before. But events that have been now going for nine years, I just spoke recently to an organizer from TEDx Montreal who was describing one idea they reviewed three years in a row. And by the third year, they felt like the idea was cooked enough wow. <laughs> uh, wow. that it was ready for the stage. But they, they're tracking multiple ideas of people doing things in their city. Mm. And then they put them on the stage and they started helping each other. So they when they need a... a they need kind of a, maybe a, somebody to bounce ideas off of or another set of eyes. They start sharing programs with each other as well. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I once heard something that may be fake news, so I'm really glad I'm bringing it up after this credibility point, <laughs> um, that in Japan, the turnstiles in the subway are open until you, like, don't, you don't have fare and then they close on you. And in the U.S., they're closed until you can open them. And I feel like as a metaphor, it's like TED is open until you really like fail or you do something that we need to like tell you, hey, we need to course correct you. And that is so rare for an organization with the powerful brand and scale that you guys have. I mean, it goes back to trust, like you're saying, but it's just every question we're asking you, you're like, no, we trust them until like they figure it out until like such a small number of people break that trust, I suppose. I have a hard enough time fact-checking things in my life, like trying to know what's uh, correct or not and the mission of TED is to spread ideas. How do people kind of, in that specific case, navigate that and figure out, you know, are these ideas credible or not? That's a, that seems like a pretty hard challenge. Yeah, we provide, I mean, fact-checking is a, a bit of a science. There's a process to there it, go. there's a method there to it, and we provide uh, toolkits on how you go about fact-checking. So we have a It's actually not a policy, it's a toolkit on how to fact check from, and it's pretty easy to do, it's just time consuming. Mm. Um, And that's really in the hands of the organizers and 99.9% of the time, they do a pretty good job of it. And sometimes they don't and we take care of it. Yeah. One thing that I remember from our first conversation that I loved was (laughs) how you were talking about your goal is to reduce the number of rules in the rule book and also possibly to keep your team at headquarters as small as possible or like reduced. But why, in your words, are you trying to do that? Why is that a goal for you? Sure. 
The nature of the TEDx program is that it is distributed. The knowledge, the expertise, the energy, and the influence doesn't sit with the small group we have in New York at the TED headquarters. It is actually in 4,000 events around the world and 3,000 communities. And so my goal in leading this, the group is to remember that always and to try and stay small. So we actually can't do that much because if we have a bigger team, every mm. person on the team is going to try and come up with new things and new processes and new workflows. And because we're always actually smaller than we should be, we can only focus on certain things. So we focus on systems and frameworks and creating that envelope and creating the spaces by which TEDxers can come and do everything else. Yeah. You know, you, I basically tell my team always, what can you put out there so you, they have it and we can get out of the way? The more we get out of the way, the more amazing things TEDxers do. And the more they see that we trust them and the more degrees of freedom we give them, they do more incredible things. So that's a beautiful thing to do. I also am benefiting from 10 years of experience, right? So think about TEDx in its first year. I know for a fact that we thought of many things that could go wrong and we put more rules in place. And then in year two, we had a few embarrassments and in year three, we had a few and they seemed really like a really big deal. And so we ended up by the time I joined with a pretty hefty set of rules. Mm. And then more recently for our 10 year anniversary, we took a sweep and we said, look, we now have the benefit of a really healthy, robust community mm -hmm. that has learned in 10 years, that has taught each other. So let's look at every rule again and let's see okay, is this an edge case? Well, how many times did this actually happen? It happened only three years in the last two years, three times in the last two years. We don't need to put a rule for every little edge case. Mm -hmm. um, what about this rule? Like there's a couple of things that when I go to TEDx events and, <laughs> and, and I, if, I, if we have a glass of wine in the evening at the after party or whatever, they'll tell me about the rule that is most painful to them, right? <laughs> and that's, that's really good. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Come <laughs> exactly. sit with me. Exactly. Like, here we go. So, so there were a few, and, they, and all our team members, so a couple of those we eliminated recently. And because we, we think this is a rule that's actually really a pain point for yeah. them. Like we thought it makes us feel safer, but this is really making their life harder. Mm -hmm. So we try and, and relax where we can. And that's really with the benefit of time. Yeah. What does your headquarters team look like now? Like, what are some of the core competencies that you have? Do you have a designer? Do you have, you know, like, what are the roles maybe? And how do you hire? Because this is, to me, not a really, like, standard job description. <laughs> like, the idea of giving other people tools and power to do things is something a teacher does, but not the average, like, corporate American yeah. employee. So first question is, what does your team look like now? How do you think about structuring it? And then also, like, what are some of the ways that you vet candidates to come yeah, work at that? Yeah, it's a great uh, Two great questions. So first one's easy. Um, <laughs> our team is structured. Uh, we have a licensing team. So these are the, that's the team that reviews all the applications and then um, kind of works on renewals as well. Because yeah. we our licenses are uh, essentially 12 months uh, licenses that get renewed. And so they do both of those. That's a very detailed task because remember, you also, you're processing applications from all over the world with cultures that you don't necessarily understand from people whose language the application is in English and people whose yeah. English is not their native language. So a lot of attention need to be paid and to do that job well. Mm. Then kind of think about people coming into the network. We have a group, uh, a team called Community Learning and Education. And that's really about the transfer of knowledge and cultivation of knowledge exchange. Mm. Uh, we also create a lot of gatherings. So we really believe, I think you wrote in your book, I read about it, about, uh, about the importance of both 
physical and virtual gatherings. And we really believe that at TEDx, it is it has been a proven success for our community. And so they are like they bringing organ- the hosts together, connecting the organizer, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Con- making them feel connected. Yeah. Uh, and they do that regionally, nationally, events that we put together or they put together. Like we this year, we had a bunch of things going on around the world. Yeah. That's, that's and you're prepping really... for one right after this interview. You're going to get on a, that's well, right. I can't say what you're doing because I don't want to blow the surprise <laughs> for all the TEDx organizers. They're cooking up something Exactly. Cool you can't here. blow the surprise. Exactly. Impossible. <laughs> so, yeah, Normally, have... I blow the surprise. So that was really impressive of me to shut my mouth. I'm really glad. This, this hat I'm wearing is a Christmas present. It yeah, is. Yeah, I gave it to him cr- a month and a half it's early. It's pre-Thanksgiving right now. <laughs> So then uh, after that, we have the media team. So that's the team that actually receives about the 20,000 talks every year. They come by the hundreds. Yeah. They get structured, reviewed, processed. Uh, so we look at kind of screen them, rate them, and then prioritize them for yeah. highlight. We have a communications team that works on social media and communications and a partnership team that works on helping to fund the program. So it's a very logical way to structure the program. How we hire is really interesting. I mean, you know, working at TED, it really is a blessing. It's a lovely organization with a good heart and a good head. You know, it's one of the best places I've worked in my life. And I think people know that. So we do have a lot of people coming to us when we have open jobs. And that's a real privilege. And just like myself, when I joined, I didn't fit the profile of doing this, right? I think and I don't know exactly yeah, why I was Just to jump from, in, yeah. you have been the CEO of CityGrid Media, which people may know Urban Spoon and City Search from. You're the CEO of Evite. You were high up at the Home Shopping Network and BCG. Those all sound quite different to Ted. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, was, I was an executive, a digital media yeah, executive, yeah, yeah. and I ran for-profit businesses. On the side, I was a member of the YPO organization. I was quite active there. There's some parallels, but really not many. But I think what Chris saw in in me is somebody who had a global spirit, who um, had a kind of spirit of optimism, mm. can do, believed in solutions, believed in possibilities. And the more I talked to him about TEDx, the more I became passionate. I'm like, this is so cool. Mm. By the way, like everyone else in the world, like 90% of the world's population or the, or the people who know TED, I didn't know the difference between TEDx mm. and TED. Mm. And most people who first come to TED, they're like, wait, how exactly does it work? So... The way I started talking about it in the interview process is what I look for when I talk to other people. The most important thing is that I see this spark in the eye when they say, this is so cool, this global network of volunteers. Mm. What they do is incredible. And to be a part of that and to support them in the journey, for it to come across as really authentic, that's really what it takes. Um, The skill sets, we we figure out uh, separately. Yeah, absolutely. Have you felt like you have any instinctual ways of operating from your background at other companies that you had to change or like assumptions you had to change coming to work at a place like TEDx where you're really like empowering your customers, audience, kind of flipping that dynamic. Because I guess I just think so many places I worked did not see their customer user audience in the way that TEDx does. Is there anything that you feel like you've really changed about how you think or operate in the last few years being there? I mean, completely. I mean, anybody who's running a for-profit business, especially if it's like part of a public company, what you manage for is control Mm. and predictability. (laughs) What do you you attempt to have absolute control where you can, from the center, direct exactly the outcome. And then if something goes wrong, you really got to go in, like clean it up and make sure it doesn't happen again, you know. And being part of uh, such a massive community of volunteers and a brand that is shared, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, TEDx is a shared brand. We, it's really shared between the organizers, the core teams around them, and also the audiences that come to the room because many of them are passionate community members that come again and again. So we just have to learn how to let go and just sometimes to take a deep breath and accept that some things are not going to go exactly the way we want them to go. And as much as we can, uh, not interfere and not intervene. Yeah. And the tricky part is you can't do that 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Right? The hardest part of, of the job for me and for my team is on the very, very few occasions where you do determine that despite the fact that this person or this group of people are volunteers and they wanted to join us and they wanted to do a good things or still maybe want to do good things, but making the determination that the net contribution to the community as a whole is negative yeah. and maybe it's time to work with them on on moving on. That's the hardest part because these are people who are volunteers of because they wanted to work with you and help you and they're fa- they become family. Yeah. In some ways, it's harder than when you run a for-profit organization mm-hmm. and it's time to let somebody go. It's a very different process, a very delicate one. Do you have any tips for or learnings for how to handle those kinds of conversations or kind of saying goodbye to a leader? How do you guys think about doing that in a thoughtful way? The one thing is to try and do it as rarely as possible, as rarely, rarely as possible. And the second one is do it, make sure that you're fair, because if you're fair, that's what the community is looking for. Ultimately, they understand because we handle these conversations in extreme privacy. And so we will have privacy with one organizer. And then the community may find out, but they don't find out necessarily from us. They find out, you know, elsewhere. So in the few occasions when it happens, you just want to make sure that they see, oh, we kind of understand, we can see the pattern and we understand that ultimately what they're doing, it's for fairness, principle of fairness, and for the advantage and promotion of the TEDx community. And, and then it's good. We, we have figured out that, that that works. You know, some of what's on your mind now. Uh, yeah, what challenges are y'all, are y'all thinking about at TEDx headquarters? Well, we at TEDx, we have just completed, as I mentioned, a 10-year anniversary celebration. So we decided to make it a year-long birthday party. Exactly. (laughs) And we started uh, and we spent a lot of time kind of really reflecting and celebrating uh, and also refreshing a lot of the things that we were doing, kind of updating systems and rules and guidelines and tools and all that stuff. We had five big weekend celebrations in different continents around the world, et cetera, et cetera. That sounds like the birthday party I want. Exactly. (laughs) And again, also largely powered by volunteers and by members of our community. So that's been phenomenal. You know, and now it's really, you look at this community, it's healthy, it's robust, it's engaged. And I, the words in my mouth, the words in my head are that with power comes responsibility, right? We have the stages, we have the influence, we have each other at TEDx. And so what more can we do with this? And that actually works well with also kind of the thinking at TED, where we are trying to think more and more about how can we lean more into impact? So we know that every at every TEDx event, what happens in the room creates a chain reaction of impact. Lives are changed on stage for the speakers who come on stage, for the people who hear the ideas, for the interactions that happens in the room. We hear that again and again and again. When the talks are watched online, you, the two of you know, I know, like we hear this all the time. Oh, this talk changed my life. Mm. Or I recently spoke to a TEDx speaker who said, you know, in my entire life, I was able to help in my profession, maybe a hundred people. And after giving this one talk, I'm helping like, 10 million people. Wow. And like that sphere and influence is high impact and yeah. transformative to everybody. 
But we're trying to see how can we take it a step further, uh, leaning more into kind of important causes. And we have to do it very, very delicately mm -hmm. because we're not an activist organization. We are essentially uh, just want to focus on ideas. But can ideas... Can we give them a little bit more help? What mm -hmm. can we do to nudge them a little bit more, more help towards impact? That's kind of our focus for next year. Could you give us any preview of you know, what, what might the future hold for TEDx? No. <laughs> no, but I... Uh, answer. <laughs> I think... We're going to uh, turn off the recording. Well, let me, let me, like, what I can tell you is that tune in and on December 4th to an announcement whoop, to whoop, TED whoop, and it will give you whoop. a sense for some of the things that we'll be focused on for next year. Great. Final thing, if I gave you a magic wand and you could wave the wand and give TEDx organizers around the world something or the community something, what would you ask for? I would ask for a full scholarship, flight, hotel, and registration fee waived for every single TEDx organizer around the world to come to a TED or a TEDx event. Um, I've, that's actually been one of Not maybe not one, the one kind of challenge in this program that I've not been able to solve. And that's because what we learn is when we have an event, for example, in New York City in April, we have an event called TED Fest. It's an event for TEDx organizers. 550 of them come from different parts of the world. Uh, we live stream the conference from Vancouver, but we do amazing things together. And during that week, we learn, but more importantly, we fall in love with each other. And that's, <laughs> that's a really important part of creating that bond. The people, people's lives are really transformed from that experience. They go back, they have friends all around the world, but they have a toolkit and a network to solve a lot of problems. It's super fun. It's not cheap. I mean, even though the event's not expensive, but not that expensive, uh, come to New York to fly to New York, etc., is a lot of money. And so, and by the way, That's how they then get qualified to do an event bigger than 100. Oh, interesting. Right? So that's kind of like, it's mm. almost like, come and hang out with us. Get to, we all get to know each other, learn from each other, develop that network. It's like TED grad school. Yeah. Exactly. And I am acutely aware that that is the first time it creates some kind of a disadvantage for people in certain parts of the world with certain economic backgrounds, because not everybody is able to fund that. And shockingly, I've not been able to find easy funding for mm. it. Mm. Uh, so... If I could have that magic wand, that's absolutely what I would, I would, I would bring us together, not necessarily in New York, yeah. but in more places around the world. Yeah. Well, we put it out into the ecosystem. Yeah, let's do I'm it. I'm sure one of our We're listeners can solve it. that problem for you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Jay, thank you so much for yeah, talking to for us coming. today. Thank you for having us. And yeah. make sure you go to a TEDx event near you. Woo! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks. Yeah. If you want to get involved with TEDx, head on over to TED.com. You can also follow Jay on Twitter. His username is at J-A-Y-H-E-R-R-A-T-T-I. There we go. Well done. If I trace all the way back, I think one of the reasons I might be working with you today in New York City and here is because of a TEDx talk. I attended this hmm. one you know, while I was in college with uh, one of the partners at IDEO. And it just really blew open my mind and how I thought about my career. Shout and out I, to Fred. Yeah, shout out to Fred Dust. And I, it just had this impact on me where I thought about, you know, what does it mean to... I saw myself potentially having a creative career before I thought creative was locked under like 
just a designer or an artist. You know, I was studying mechanical engineering and I wanted to go into kind of more businessy entrepreneurial stuff. And I was like, it really motivated me. And it led me to make these decisions that got me into New York. It got me here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I love that you're like, I just started thinking about being a creative. And right now you're wearing bright turquoise, a salmon hat and a sick, may I just say, Kenzo scarf. Thank you. Thank you, Sean Evaristo for that donation. You're totally creative, dude. Well, it's not just how you dress. I feel, you know. I know, but it, it comes out of your skin when into your clothes, right? Some people, quote unquote, creative people I know just wear all black. All black. I know. That's the sign of the ultimate creative when you're just like, I'm so sensitive to color that I can't even like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that sensitive. All right. If you want to find out more about us, visit our website, peopleand.company. It's dot .company, not a dot .com. Dot .company. Woohoo. Also, you know, our book is on Amazon. Check it out. It's called Get Together. You can just search Get Together in a little cool field where you type things usually. Or just go to gettogetherbook.com and there's a nifty link. It's full of stories and learnings from conversations like this with community leaders. And please check it out. Yeah, it's how we hooked Jay to do this uh, It is this interview it with is. us. Our book infected the TEDx Matrix. Yeah, he without, read it, without me reached trying. out to us. What, a, what an amazing email. Good job. High five. Woo! All right. Last thing, if you feel like doing so, please review us and subscribe to the podcast. It actually really makes a difference in podcast land. It helps you find us, help more people find us. So if you feel like doing that, just go click them stars. Do it. Do it. All right. Thanks, y'all. See you next time. Bye. Thank you to Listening Party at Canal Street Market for having us, for letting us record this episode in your beautiful space. <laughs>